Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Join Mason and Jake each week as they try new wines and discover how much government is in your drink. Welcome to another fantastic episode of Tasting Anarchy. I'm your host, Jacob Lindsay, and as always, I'm joined by Mason Joseph. And I think this week we've, we were both talking about it a little bit before the episode, and um, you know, yours and my interests are not only wine, of course. We, we have many interests, and uh, one of the things that you said you might want to talk a little bit about was uh, basically breaking free of... Uh, I guess the nine to five to some degree or, or the W two work and mm-hmm. also kind of getting into some of the stuff that we do for side income, uh, w- mainly being options and how much the, the government has kind of like gotten in and you can take advantage one way or the other, as, as you were pointing out earlier, is that you can either trade with the government's interference and sometimes that's good for you, or you can try to trade against it, which also can be good for you as well, depending on, you know, what's going on. So, since it's your topic, you want to go ahead and get us kind of started? Yeah, so I think the I think the first thing to mention is what an option actually is. So an option is the right, or it, yeah, I guess right would be the best way to kind of describe it. It's the right to buy or sell a certain number of stocks, usually 100, um, at a certain price, generally called the strike price. And this is a contract that you can buy that has a set expiration time and you can also sell them. So you and I both buy and sell options and we both have more unique strategies to compare to each other, though we both started roughly the same way. So, yeah. 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 So I think, yeah, I mean, you, you definitely have, you're also very interested in different things than I'm interested in when it comes to uh, options just in general. The contracts is I do tend to like oil a lot and commodities and mm-hmm. you tend to be more interested in like tech. And- I, I'm I'm more it's companies I'm familiar with. And that's one of the okay. things. So um, to kind of tie this to Liberty and Freedom Fest specifically, one of the people that we specifically really like is Mark Skousen. And Mark Skousen, one of his things is kind of, you really shouldn't be getting involved in something like from a company where you don't really know what they do and you don't really know Mm -hmm. who they are. Right. I don't care for windows all that much, but I use windows pretty much every day, except for on the weekends. Well, except for on Saturdays, really. Um, And I use an Apple product every day because of my smartphone. Um, So I'm very familiar with both of those companies. Now, I'm not as familiar with Microsoft as I used to be like when I was working at GameStop and, you know, sold Microsoft gaming systems, you know, that sort of thing. But those two companies have been doing particularly well, at least in market value. So I've been able to sell what's called put options, which is um, where you are selling the right for somebody to sell you a certain number of stocks. And if you are buying a put, you're buying the right to sell a certain number of stocks. So what I end up doing is buying below the current market trading price and selling below the current market trading price, but not by much, but enough to make the sell of, or to make the purchase of the put option that I end up buying free to me. And then make a credit with the idea that hopefully the price of the stock won't come down. Somebody will execute 
and then I'll be out the difference between the two items. Right. Which right, happened exactly. to me this weekend. <laughs> so, yeah. So that, that, yeah. So that in, in some cases that ends up being a good deal. Uh, and then there's also, you know, this is what they call a put, a put credit spread. So they, you've got the, the difference. We don't want to get too technical because it's not really an option show, but like, that's where you can kind of do the manipulation. Uh, I tend to be, I think, I think actually what I think is really interesting about this. And I was talking to Victoria about it earlier this week is that your strategy and my strategy are very, um, like they're re- very reflective of our personalities. Like mm-hmm. I wouldn't say that you're like a pessimist exactly, but you do like to play to the put spread side. And I very much rather play to the call spread side. And um, it's not that like, I like to, you know, leg into a spread. So I like to buy something that I think is going to go into the money soon. Mm-hmm. And then I like to sell against that. Uh, and so I don't mind holding a spread naked for a little, or I, I don't mind, I guess it wouldn't be a spread yet. I don't mind holding one side of a spread for a couple of days and then mm-hmm. selling against it when it goes up. And that's what I do with oil a lot is like if oil takes a dip and I made quite a bit of money on this not too long ago, although I've also lost money on it, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, USO kind of screwed me when they did that reverse yes. split, but, uh, <laughs> both of us, but that's, you know, that's one of those things, you, you know, nobody can really foresee a, a reverse split, but, uh, when, when that big crash happened, I ended up buying into Exxon mobile and made a pretty chunk of change on that. And then there was a dip recently this week and I went ahead and bought back into Exxon mobile and, mm-hmm. and now I, I hold that naked. I was able to sell against it. Then the, then it dipped again. I was able to buy back for a profit the side that I sold, and I'm waiting for it to go back up again, and then sell against it again. And then the the idea being that it it either ends at a strike price between the two positions that I have, or above the one that I sold, so that if they so they'll execute me, and then I get to execute my mine and and make the difference between the two the two legs. Yeah. And I think there's a couple of things that I find very interesting about the way you view our trading strategies. Yeah. You for 10 years have basically been telling me that the dollar is going to become completely worthless. Mm-hmm. So I prefer to, and this is one of those ones where it's like, it isn't really super well thought out. So know that I kind of understand that while saying this out loud, everybody, but you know, you've been telling me for 10 years, everything's going to go to crap. So I'm like, I don't want to own any of these companies. Cause I think they're all commodities. Everything is super inflated compared to where it would be. But I feel if I had some currency like that, I could pull out quickly as opposed to having to convert a position to currency mm-hmm. and then have to go and buy something from there. You know what I mean? Like I have to convert, yeah. get to cash, get the cash and then try to buy like pesos or whatever, you know, gold, whatever it may be. Right. So well, what, what I think is funny about that though, is that synthetically your positions and my positions are the same mm-hmm. because, because from a, a put, uh, a put credit spread synthetically is the same as a call spread. Uh, you're having the expectation that the stock will go up or that it will end in between the two things. Whereas like a, the, a, a put debit spread you would have the expectation that's going down. Mm-hmm. And so if you thought that these companies were actually going to lose value, then you would then you would buy a put debit spread with the expectation that it's going to go down. And 
and that's what I think is interesting that, I mean, same thing, what you're saying is I think it's interesting the way that like, that we both position ourselves in that is from a synthetic position, we're basically doing the same thing, mm-hmm. but from a, from the way I perceive puts or the way I, and this is one of the things that they always warn you against when you're doing any sort of trading or anything is, isn't to take the emotion out of it. And, but there's, you know, you're always going to have emotion in your trading and is from like an emotional standpoint, I see puts as negative and I see calls as positive. And when you're talking about synthetics, it, it's, it's irrelevant. They're the same thing. It just depends yeah. on how you trade them. It, exactly. So, and there's the other thing is, so the other thing that I do is I try to be out of the market every week, basically to that's right. Yeah. Try to close all the positions if I can. So that way I'm never holding something long. And that's mm-hmm. kind of one of those things where um, you're familiar with who Simon Black is, right? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Simon Black's thing is, you know, why have a U.S. bank account when you could be buying treasuries that are like the 30 day or 90 day or whatever they are? Mm-hmm. Because like statistically you get 2%. So it's, you're beating what the bank's giving you. Right. And then from there, you're very unlikely that the government is going to completely go to crap in those 90 days where it's going to be completely worthless where, and that's kind of how I trade or I try to trade is where I'm only in there every week and then kind of out again. But also the other thing is I don't have the ability to watch the market to find or analyze the same way you do throughout the trading day. Whereas, That's true because yeah, I do a lot more technicals than mm-hmm. you do, is because like I can watch all day long and go like, oh, this pattern, this is a pattern that indicates that people are going to do X, Y, or Z, and I can I can take positions during the day that will take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is like because I'm usually trading, the way I'm usually trading, I can always kind of go long in a position or go long time horizon if a position goes too negative. Like I can generally roll out and maybe have a small debit and it compromises my position if I've over invested, but it doesn't kill me. But I'm also not trading with a hundred thousand dollars and neither are you, but yeah, like, you know, I mean, I'd like to get up to the point where I don't have to take the federally regulated limit on my day trades. Correct. But, um, but which yeah, is 25,000 for anybody who's wondering, that's yeah. the, that's the, you have to have a, an account of 25,000. Otherwise you cannot do more than three day trades a week, mm-hmm. which I, I think is a 2008 regulation or, or as a result of 2008. I thought it was 2001, but oh, I really? certainly, okay. I, here's the thing. I could certainly be wrong there. You know what I mean? Okay. Um, so that, that's one of those ones where there's some time frame in there, but yeah, like that's one of the things is like the, you know, and one of the things that federal reserve is doing is it's currently dumping money and unbeknownst and unkind of underreported in the U S media is that like other central banks have been dumping billions of dollars, especially the Swiss to devalue their currency into the U S bonds and not even bonds anymore, just straight the stock market. So, mm-hmm. you know, like it's not always a good thing to be playing in the stock market, 
unless, you know, you have a quick out or, you, you know, you protect yourself and you don't overinvest. But that those are just, you know, kind of one of those things where both you and I are hyper interested in not being anyone else's person product. You know what I mean? Like we, right. We don't mind being employees, but that's not what we want to be. And one of the things that we find super interesting is options. And so, you know, and I, I've invested in different Tom, you know, courses that Tom Woods is like put out and I, through my own failings, haven't made those work because I know they work. It's just, you know, finding the one that works for me and in sitting down and doing it. Um, but that's one of those things where you and I are always constantly kind of going like, how do we do something different? And one of the things like we like to do is options. And so, you know, if we could do options and wine, as we've talked about in the past, we would. Um, and well, it's interesting that you say that because, because mm. when you mentioned that you wanted to talk about options, I thought I'd bring up that there is a wine futures market, both, mm-hmm. um, there is a main wine futures market, which is mostly, I believe in, uh, Bordeaux and Rioja. I think those are the two main ones that are like publicly traded and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a crypto exchange for wine. It's a wine exchange. It's, it's, it's more for like somebody will warehouse the bottles for you and you're making the, the same thing with options is you're assuming that if you buy either a portion of a bottle or a full bottle and in somebody's warehouse that at over a certain amount of time, that value will go up. And then at some point somebody will buy it, Mm -hmm. the whole bottle. And that's kind of what options are as well. So, um, there's, I think it's called Alti Wine Exchange. I think that's the that's the name of it. And they're working on like a crypto token to kind of like work out a lot of this stuff. And it, and it shows where like different wines from different regions are going. And it's something that I've, I've kind of been interested in. I, I think that there's also uh, something that kind of mirrors the way that Rioja and Bordeaux do it is um, I think you can buy like a portion of a whiskey barrel. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the way that it works with Rioja and Bordeaux. I think it's less common in Rioja, but I think you can still do it in Rioja. Uh, but you've got like Rioja is the one I'm a little bit more familiar with, but you've got like Reserva and Grand Reserva. And so um, one of them is, I think, five years and the other one's 10 years. Or I could, I, maybe I had that way too exaggerated. But um, let's say that like the Rioja Reserva, which is the less aged one, comes up and it turns out it's excellent. You may want to buy into a barrel of Grand Reserva and the people who bought into the barrel of Grand Reserva at the beginning will make quite a bit of profit because when that when that one comes out and people are like, whoa, this was really good at five years, when the next bottle is when the next barrel is bottled, that theoretically could be really good. But it could also be that it's a dud. It it was mm-hmm. only good as a reserva. It wasn't good as a grand reserva. So like it's one of those kind of interesting things where whiskey is turns is the same ways and, and wine you got other factors like does it have barrel taint maybe maybe the barrel taint doesn't manifest itself after five years but it does at 10 years you know that kind of thing so there is a an interesting market about that but kind of to, kind of to what you were saying is that yeah that's that's kind of what i i would love to do that kind of stuff i'd love to just sort of trade wine yeah and that's one of the things is we've talked about you know how do we get or you've talked about like, you know, making like a crypto, uh, way to track, you know, wine all the way through and, you know, kind of verify self-executing contracts and all that stuff. And so I think that's one of those ones where, 
you know, if we did manage to free ourselves, I think that'd be like an, a very interesting and worthwhile project, especially with, yeah, people, I think so too. you know, with is the few contacts we have in the wine industry, you know, setting it up for like Ricky and kind of going like, Hey, you don't have to do anything. You know what I mean? Like we're going to put this all together and then, you know, kind of, you get that ability to be like, Oh, you know, we came out and we actually picked and, you know, did all the the fun things to help. And then what we would be doing wouldn't be harming them in any way. So if it didn't work out, it's not like they're suddenly, Oh, we invested all this in. And then people could be like, Oh, look, you could see this all the way through. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think that would be, that would be definitely worthwhile. And, and it, and, you know, maybe one of the things I, we have, I think we've mentioned it before on the show is Schilderberg town. Uh, Victoria and I are going out to New Mexico next weekend mm-hmm. um, and checking out potential locations for Schilderberg town. I don't know if it's actually going to be there or if it's going to be somewhere else, but uh, it's definitely something that I find realistic. And one of the things that I wanted to make, you know, one of the things that you want and that I want and uh, in the future is to have a vineyard of our own where we can kind of figure out, you know, figure it out, make some wine that we like for better or for worse. (laughs) (laughs) But there's a lot of, uh, we're going to visit a winery while while we're out there in that area. And they do, they're making a lot of really interesting high altitude wines. um, Because the climate is so interesting in that area because you've got high desert on the floor in the valley. And then just up the mountain, you've got Alpine, uh, like an Alpine environment. And Mm -hmm. um, so you're going from like, 5,000 to 6,000 or 5,000 to 8,000 feet in like 20 minutes. And it's a, like a steep climb. So that'll be, that'll be kind of interesting. That's kind of what I want to scope out a little bit is like sites that then, you know, there's probably nothing available right now that I'm probably going to buy right now. Unless like something really awesome happens in the next week and I make a ton of money in my options trading. Uh, that the would lottery be ticket turns out. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> lottery ticket pays out. Yeah, exactly. Again, I and I do still buy lottery tickets, even though it's statist. But uh, yeah, yeah, you know, something like that happens, and um, I make a ton of money. Then you know, I may be calling you up from New Mexico and be like, "Hey, come out and work on my winery." <laughs> Getting started here. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's one of those things that, like, as like anarchists and people trying to push the envelope a little bit in in liberty is like these are things that are important to think about but there is also stuff that's going on in the real world uh where you can take advantage of the ebbs and flows of the federal federal reserve decisions or political decisions i mean like trump tweets something out and it totally changes the market these days Mm -hmm. and because if you have your ear to the ground kind of politically uh it can have a major effect on your profits and loss and you can take advantage of that or, you know, we, I don't always read it correctly. I mean, like one of the things you, you actually mentioned it to me and I was like, that actually sounds like a good idea. And then I also, you know, you know, I pay a lot more attention to the Greeks than you do. I looked at the Greeks and I was like, Oh my God, this is like a, an amazing opportunity. And then didn't take the opportunity and just bought one side of Hertz mm-hmm. instead of like, instead of taking, taking advantage of the volatility skew and buying and selling in the same, trade in my mind i was like it's the dip i'll buy the dip and then i'll sell again (laughs) but it's like and then like after like looking over all of what's going on with hertz i was like that was a really bad decision i should have actually paid attention to the greeks i should have paid attention to implied volatility and sold the implied volatility on the front end mitigated my loss which is you know our goal is to mitigate loss Mm -hmm. 
um, when we're doing our trades and then take the more limited profits. But uh, I didn't do that. I, I broke my own rule and uh, didn't sell against it, which I sh- is what, what I should have done. And it had I sold against it, I probably would have be about even in the trade right now because the IV has gone down so much. But, uh, you know, you win some, you lose some. Yeah. And that's the thing is like, I, like I said, I got, you know, the other day I got pinched, um, on Hertz. Um, but I also had gone into Disney and I hadn't really traded in Disney. And then of course, you know, Thursday or so ago, the whole market's kind of bottom out, um, except for Apple and Microsoft really. Um, and I was too close to the, you know, like micro, like Apple, like when I exited my last position in Apple, like I had bought the 320 and sold the 325 and Apple was at 352. Yeah. Like, and that was nine days. It had gone up that much. Now, percentage wise, it's not a huge rise giving us $300 and going from 325 to 350. You know, it's not a huge rise. And plus I was already selling below the price, but like, you know, Apple was under 200 or under 300 a couple of weeks ago. So like, I know the gold mine's going to go away and I'll probably start selling calls at that point. But you know, this is the stock that I follow. This is the company, you know, like they're supposedly going to be announcing their move away from Intel tomorrow. Um, they've already announced they're doing it, but they're already, you know, they might be actually talking, you know, product release timelines for fully arm based processors for desktop service. Um, Mm. that's custom Apple silicone, but they also are supposedly, you know, might be announcing a new iMac. Um, but they also may not do any of that. You know, that's one of the things is there was a couple of rumors that came out today where it's like, yeah, they're not doing hardware. Uh, it's all software. So, you know, like I have, you know, I have a cousin who works for Apple and his wife works for Apple, but you know, they, they have non-disclosures and, and they would have no reason to give me any knowledge and I would never ask them for it. Cause it's just, yeah, that's, there's a certain time where, you know, like if it's, Hey, are we going to go to war? And you're trying to get somebody to tell you. So that way, you know, you could get your kid out of the country because you thought the draft was going to take them. Yeah, sure. You know, you can ask your cousin to break that non that confidentiality agreement, but you know, otherwise, no, like I'm not going to ask my cousin to do that just for, you know, trying to figure out like, Oh, a possible rise in the market. Cause I'm sure the people who are trading that on volume, they already know, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, so that's true. Someone yeah. in the supply chain that isn't at Apple directly has leaked all the information to them. I'm not. And I don't have anywhere near that volume. So yeah. Well, and also from sort of a, uh, from a, from an options perspective is, is all rumors are built into the price. So unless you uh, literally are the one who gets the rumor first. Yeah, exactly. And even though they're built in the price, it's not necessarily built. They're building the price through the Greeks. And, and what I think is interesting about the Greeks is that when the rumor becomes the fact, you know, they, the, the maxim or whatever of wall street is, you know, buy on the rumor, sell on the fact. And, um, with options, it, it's sort of the reverse of that sometimes, but it's that the it depends on what Greek you're trying to sell. Like the way that you and I most can, and, and, and you know, admittedly to everybody who's listening, we're amateurs. We don't really know what we're doing exactly. Mm-hmm. I think we know more than more than the average bear, but uh, and we're definitely bearish on <laughs> the United States <laughs> yep. economy. But um, I think we know a little bit more about it. But the when you, we we do tend to trade delta, I think we're missing out on a lot of opportunities to trade volatility 
Um, I do more theta scalping, I think, than you do, which I think I think is is at our at the amount of money we're investing, the theta that you can reap is not much. But you can do theta scalping if you grow your account large enough, where you can be you know you can make three or four percent off of theta, mm-hmm. which is just time decay. For those of you who don't know what theta is, is time decay, and um, and if you make three or th- Three or four percent on a hundred thousand dollars has a lot of money, but my account's nowhere near a hundred thousand dollars, and neither is yours. Mm-hmm. So the theta is just kind of building in a couple extra bucks. But I do like to try to take those into account because at some point I would, you know, I uh, even though I'm very pessimistic on the future of the, of the American economy, I do think they're going to be able to reinflate the bubble. I think that this is going to be a, another ten years of quote unquote prosperity, and by that I mean the stock market is going to probably go up for. I think probably in the near term, there'll probably be another big dip, but I think in the long run over the next 10 years, we're going to see it continue to go up and set records. And, um, and this is a nice 10 year grace period for everybody to prepare, shore up your ships, get into gold, get into crypto. Um, I think Bitcoin is probably going to be the one that, that um, comes out on top, but get into, guns and ammo and tobacco and the things that last and kind of forget about the dollar or prepare yourself to forget about the dollar in about 10 years. Cause I mm-hmm. think that that's, I think we have one more chance and it may be that we have two more chances, but I think that regardless of whether or not we have two more chances or three more chances or five more chances, preparing now is not a bad idea. Yeah. And so, especially if you can theoretically exit then it doesn't really matter if there are six more chances if you exited comfortably and live an okay life. You know what I mean? Like if you're that's right. out, you're out and yeah, that's I mean, good enough. I, I use, I use like the strong towns guys. Um, his, his maxim, I guess is what I'm trying to provide for people that I know and care about and people who think, even if I don't know them, the people that I think the way I have, I would like to, prepare a place so that people can live a prosperous life or a good life in a prosperous place. That's what he says. A good life in a prosperous place. It may not be the most extravagant life. You may not be living in, you know, downtown Manhattan in a skyscraper and uh, drinking Chardonnay, which we'll get to, although you may be drinking Chardonnay. It depends on what we can grow in uh, Childerberg town. But uh, yeah, you may not be drinking champagne and stuff with a bunch of hookers and cocaine and all that sort of stuff. But uh, I would like to prepare a place for like-minded individuals to to come and assemble and um and, and live live the way that human beings should live, like in in a way that would sound money in a um, a positive forward direction, not a not a direction that is forward but reliant on debt. It's got to be built on capital investment, and I think that's the future that if if we prepare that. Um, we're going to be better off in the long run and our children will be better off in the long run. And that's kind of, you know, that's kind of my goal. So Mm -hmm. I think that, um, you know, I may not see all of it in my life, although I do think I'm going to live for a very long time, but um, I think I'll, I'll at least get the ball rolling and that, you know, your daughter, if I have kids, my kids will, will, they'll be able to pick up the, you know, the, uh, what is it? The relay baton, I guess, and and run with it and (laughs) exactly and continue and continue making the prosperous place a more prosperous place. Yeah. Uh, Let's take it. What's that? Before that. Okay. Don't forget everybody. So, um, if you donate to freeross.org in the month of June, which is 
quickly almost out. Um, I'm going to match up to the first $100 uh, to free Ross. Um, we're trying to get Childerberg to that $800 uh, donated to free Ross. So anybody who can donate um, and can do so in the month of June and post the receipt to tasting our Childerberg um, Twitter, Childerberg on Twitter, then I will match up to the first $100. So keep it up if anybody's out there doing it, <laughs> which Perfect. I don't think I've seen a tweet saying somebody has. No, not yet. I haven't seen any, but if, um, if you guys are interested, just hit, hit us up, uh, and we will, we'll match that donation. Uh, I'll, ma- I'll make another donation and then you can match mine at least. So, <laughs> at least we'll get that much but let's exactly. go ahead and play uh let's play uh, a word from our sponsor and then let's get into some wine talk you know we've been mm-hmm. talking about stuff other stuff that's interesting to us but uh a lot of our listeners come for talk about wine and uh we can give them some talk about wine because i've got uh, a nice wine review and i've got a article and maybe you got a nice wine review as well but we'll we'll get to that after a word from our sponsor Hi folks, Dan Reed here, the host of the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. During the show's tenure, I've spoken to celebrated authors of baking and economics. I've chatted with bakers and chefs and libertarians alike to introduce you to people who provide a mix of ideas to build your skills in the kitchen, as well as tempt your appetite toward liberty. Type culinarylibertarian.com slash podcasts into your browser search bar and subscribe on your favorite podcatcher. I look forward to hearing from you. All right. And that is a, a word from the Culinary Libertarian. Mm-hmm. As I said uh, last time, uh, great show. I listened to his last episode, actually, and you or your wife, I'm not sure which one of you cooks corn in your family, might be interested in listening to. He had an entire episode on corn hmm. and how to cook corn on the cob or make cream corn or uh, different types of sweet corn. And it's a to-be-continued episode, so he will be – continuing his corn talk on the next episode so speaking of corn yeah that that was uh a big thing in my family growing up and we really don't eat a lot of corn now that yeah you know we eat cornbread more frequently but not not actual corn and and that's funny because i me too like i i ate a lot of corn on the cob growing up and cream corn and other types of corn and stuff like that and i don't eat a lot of it now but once in a while victoria will have like a strong craving for corn on the cob Mm-hmm. And so, and I usually just boil it. He had some really interesting pointers for boiling corn, things that you do to make it not hard and make it taste a little sweeter. And um, Putting milk in there? Uh, he puts a little bit of sugar in the water. Hmm. No salt. He says you can salt the corn after, but if you cook it salted, it will make it tougher. That uh, makes sense in its own way to me. Yeah, it's it's interesting. So uh, I would recommend everybody listen to that if you're interested in corn on the cob. Uh, if well, you're summer, interested in corn on the season. cob. Yeah. What's that? It's summer and grilling season. So yeah. Exactly. And on August 24th, it's Ron Paul Day. Mm, yes. What will I be serving at Ron Paul Day at, at probably Grapevine Lake, possibly Lake Worth. We'll, we'll, we'll come up with a final location soon. Um, we're going to be serving some corn on the cob and we'll be grilling burgers and dogs. And uh, and I'll use culinary libertarian suggestions on how to make a, a nice, soft, sweet corn. Oh, very nice. Yeah, I think that'll be that'll be really good. Yeah. Uh, so on to our wine topics. Yeah. Are you sipping on anything tonight or you want to get into my wine review? Well, so I was going to review um, 
the Georgian wine that I got, the red. Mm -hmm. Um, But Mm -hmm. I did not, because I was feeling so bad most of the day. Mm -hmm. Um, Like at lunch, I went ahead and had two glasses of Chardonnay uh, from one of the like wineonsale.com Groupon my mom got me. I don't have the name of it. I was going to do that one for my review next week. Um, But I had two glasses and like, like I said, I, I think I may have said off air, like I'm thinking I'm probably lactose intolerant or have something going on with lactose based stuff. Cause my wife made clotches and then made, um, uh, biscuits and gravy as the interior and there's milk in that. And I just had stomach issues all day. And, but I don't know if it was the wine, the magnesium and the NMM I took, if I ate too much, I don't know what it was. So, um, right. but the, the Chardonnay I had when my wife first sipped it, she just went buttery. And then we read the back and it's like, you know, sweet melon, a bunch of stuff like that. So I didn't chill it. I think it would have been a lot better chilled. Um, cause it was pretty oily when it was warm. So got it. yeah, yeah I, I think it definitely needed to be chilled down a bit. So it'd be a little well, more crisp, you know probably. Uh, on that review, why don't we get into the the wine grape uh, Chardonnay of the week, which is Chardonnay, um, and and maybe maybe this will shine a little bit of light on it. Uh, mm-hmm. I think you probably could have guessed part of it uh, or most of it. Uh, so Chardonnay, I'll, I'll get into my wine review here in a second. But Chardonnay is uh, arguably and possibly statistically, although the statistics are a little bit ambiguous. Uh, the most popular wine grape in the world. Uh, so it, it, it it's kind of, it's sort of, it's actually Sauvignon Blanc, which is the one I'm going to review, is actually second. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting that the first two are white wines because I would have, I would have thought uh, Cabernet Sauvignon would have uh, yeah, been I would've assumed a red. It's fourth of, uh, uh, or no, uh, it's third. I'm sorry, it's third most popular. So. Uh, yeah, so the first two are whites, and the reason the first two are whites is because apparently uh, people recommend getting into wine through white wine. Uh, it is apparently more palatable, and um, more people are interested in it, I guess. And with Chardonnay in particular, there's a lot of styles that you can get, and it, and it varies widely. So the Chardonnay grape is actually used in Champagne, and that is one of the things that contributes to it being the most popular. Uh, it's not, people don't realize a lot of time that they're drinking Chardonnay when they drink champagne, but that's what's in there. And so I guess acre for acre planted, that does tend to be the highest volume of grape turned into wine. That's interesting that like, char- like that because like champagne isn't like super, super, super popular in France. Mm-hmm. And the idea that like champagne and champagne style, um, is so popular to like dominate in that way. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's, that's well, very I mean, surprising. It, it, yeah. It adds to it, but also you think about it is that the, the leading white wine in Burgundy is also Chardonnay. The leading white wine in California is Chardonnay. The leading white wine in Oregon is Chardonnay. Uh, you get all of the, and actually I think, I think it's either the first or second in Chile is Chardonnay. So <laughs> you end up getting like all of these places where, because Chardonnay was popular in France and makes a lot of different wines in France, uh, Chablis, for example, is Chardonnay. Mm-hmm. Um, you get all, you just get a lot of places planting it, and and also is a very versatile wine. And and actually, after researching this a little bit for the episode, I have, I wouldn't say 
I wouldn't say more respect. I would say less bias almost. Like I was very biased against Chardonnay when you and I first started this program. Mm-hmm. And I think it was more because I saw it as kind of like a basic bitch wine. We like, both were very against it. Yeah. 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 I think, I think so. And I've had a lot more of it mm-hmm. and it is, it can be very good and it can be very good in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's what makes it a very interesting grape. So uh, the grape or- originates in Burgundy. Uh, they've done, you know, they've done a bunch of research on it, and they found out that, that there's a lot of places that claim that they're the ones who started Chardonnay, but it's actually named after a place in that region called Chardonnay. And through genetic research, they determined that that's actually where it is. Um, I uh, don't actually have any information on its parentage, so I'm not really sure where that's from. But uh, I'll go ahead and, and give you primary flavors. Primary flavors are yellow apple. Uh, they say star fruit, but I don't know what a star fruit is. I think that's guava. I think that's no, really what they're it, talking about. No, it's it's a star fruit. It's a star-shaped fruit. Okay, like, what does it taste like? You know, it probably tastes like guava, but I don't it's one of those ones I've had it and I would know it eating it, but I wouldn't be able to give you kind of like a a flavor profile of it. Okay. This is one of the things that always kind of gets me about um, whenever somebody's like equating flavors to a wine, why don't they just equate things that like normal Americans know? Now, if if it's like, (laughs) if it's like a European who's making the, is making the, the, like you and I, whenever we talk about stuff, like it's, we're not like, we're not talking about exotic fruit or anything like that. We're talking about like regular stuff that people can know what they taste like. Um, Now, I guess if you're a European, maybe star fruit is more common in their, um, in their palate. But like, I think most fruit is imported to Europe. I don't think they grow a huge amount. Maybe Spain grows like citrus and stuff, but and and I guess I would I would say the rest of Europe grows apple. Yeah, star fruit but, is one of those. Star fruit's one of those ones. I think. I mean, you're not you weren't an adventurous eater before, um, yeah. but like star fruit's one of those ones. Like I think it they have candies that are star fruit based. Um, it's a South Asian fruit. So, I mean, that might be like, you know, growing up with a Vietnamese guy, like I may have had it there first, but like, it's one of those ones that like, it's not that, it's not that exotic. You know what I mean? Like it's like, you can, like, these are in most grocery stores in the U S. Okay. Okay. I guess that makes sense. So yeah, I sent you the, the, the Wikipedia to it. So, (laughs) uh, in Zencaster. Yeah. Oh yeah. Let me look at it real quick. Okay. Uh, actually, this looks familiar. Maybe I have had this. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Um, huh. Okay. They they do look familiar, but I don't know that I've had them or not. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, the other flavors besides star fruit, which I don't know how to compare that to anything else, is pineapple, which I do know very well because I do eat a lot of pineapple. Um, it's one of my favorite fruits. Uh and then vanilla and butter. And people may be going like, vanilla and butter, that's kind of weird. Uh, but the reason that we get vanilla and butter out of Chardonnay is because Chardonnay is widely oaked. So mm-hmm. a lot of times they will apply a lot of oak to it. And butter and vanilla is one of those flavors that you get from oak. Now, Mason, you were you were reviewing Chardonnay earlier, and you said buttery as one of the one of the items that's how my wife described it she said it tastes like pure butter it didn't really taste that way to me um Mm -hmm. i don't remember exactly how i described it to begin with but um yeah like 
it was one of those ones it didn't particularly say on the bottle if it was oaked or not um because that's what i was kind of wondering is like as soon as my wife was like oh it just tastes like pure butter i'm like well they must have oaked the bejesus out of this <laughs> you know yeah um, well and they and if it was american they probably did yeah i like i, I like steel uh steel aged uh chardonnay the ones that i've had I, yeah yeah, and, and we'll get into that a little bit because if you get like a steel age or a concrete age, you're going to get more, a lot more of that yellow apple, uh, star fruit, pineapple. Um, depending on where it's from, you know, here in Texas, we, we actually do grow Chardonnay down here, which is unusual because it is a dense cluster. And a dense cluster is what pro- kind of prohibits it from being grown in Virginia. Um, they do grow it there, but it's hard to grow because the dense cluster means that there's less airflow. You get a lot more rot in it. Yeah, you can get um, a lot more mold and things like that for you know just exactly for the, the yeah. fans. It, it's if you imagine you know for guys, your nuts stick into your leg. Kind of right. imagine that with the grapes. <laughs> exactly, that's ex- that's a great uh, great way to look at it. Yeah, it is. It is kind of gross, but yeah, that's that's the way it is. Is that you get a lot of that humidity in there on the grapes, and when the moisture gets kind of stuck in there, it turns into you know, smelly, gross, uh, mold, unless you're, unless you're going for that, which some, sometimes they are going for that. They're looking for a noble rod or something like that. But, Mm -hmm. uh, in, in Virginia, that's not typically what they're going for, but they they do sometimes go out of here, but in, uh, yeah, right, right. In Texas or in Australia or South Africa or somewhere like that, you're going to get a lot more of that tropical fruit. You're going to get like guava, a lot of that, a lot more pineapple, a lot more of those, uh, stronger fruity, like more, tropical fruit flavors. The yellow apple is a little bit more reserved for Chardonnay grown and steel age or, or concrete age in, in Northern climates where it's cooler. So mm-hmm. you dig, do you do get that from um, more Northern climates? So Chablis is a good example of this. If Chablis is not, is not oaked, you're going to get a lot more of that like crisp apple flavor. You can also get some of that more minerally slate flavor that I actually really like that. Um, so when I, when I like, when I have a white wine, I do tend to like it a little bit more further North, uh, mm-hmm. just because it does have a little bit more of that mineraliness and that more crisp apple, uh, sharper flavor. So, um, so that's kind of what you can expect from it. it just depends on where it's from. Oaked, you're going to get more, just kind of to summarize, oaked, you're going to get more vanilla and butter flavor. That butter flavor can go really well with a lot of stuff. So uh, any just kind of in your mind, think about anything you're going to cook that you add butter to, that's what an oak Chardonnay is going to go well with. Mm-hmm. Anything that you would add maybe citrus to or or apple or pineapple or something like that, that's probably what an, a steel aged or steel or concrete aged um, or concrete fermented is going to maybe go more with that. So you think shellfish kind of more for the citrus side and you think more of like um, grilled vegetables, barbecue, that kind of thing on the buttery side. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that does tend to be the breakdown. I Now, granted, Mason, you, you're kind of more of a person who has uh, a more interesting pairing when it comes to this type of stuff. You <laughs> sort of go against the grain. Yeah, but usually. that does tend to be the standard. The standard. Yeah. Now, I do like butter my steaks. So I could see if you, you know, kind of butter a steak like I do when it's resting. And then sometimes when I go to eat it, I'll put more butter on it. Cause I, I do very much enjoy butter, which my wife thought was funny that I didn't taste butter as the immediate flavor on that. Um, mm-hmm. okay. On the wine, but like, because I drink, eat a buttered 
stake, like I could see that kind of playing in there. You know what I mean? Like yeah. having that and being like, oh, because it's a buttered steak. And, you know, that sort of coming out along that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think that that's, that's a really good kind of uh, thing to sort of pair it to is a lot of people butter their spe- steaks. Uh, I mm-hmm. think actually I had steak for dinner tonight and I actually had this uh, Sauvignon Blanc, which I'll, I'll review in a second with it, which was probably not the best pairing, but uh, the steak was very good. And, um, and I, and I like this uh, Sauvignon Blanc and because of the Texas Sauvignon Blanc, it's a little heavier. So it, it, I think it went well with it, but mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and read through on wine folly. They've got nine interesting facts about Chardonnay that I'll go ahead and read through them and then we'll move on to our, to my wine review and then we'll do the article. Um, so one thing that's interesting about Chardonnay is that it, it, is widely planted and that it now surpasses Spain's Eren, which is uh, apparently their famous wine grape, which maybe we'll review that at some time. And uh, Italy's uh, vinegar grape, Trebbiano, uh, which I think I know that one, but I don't know for sure. So uh, it is more widely planted in Spain and Italy than their main white grapes. Uh, Chardonnay is a major grape in Champagne, which I, we mentioned earlier, uh, and other sparkling wines such as Crement. And uh, I'm going to try my best to read these other ones. Fran, Franci uh, Corta and Trento. I was going to say, you mean uh, Franzia? <laughs> yeah, right. right Fran, yeah, I, I wonder if you can do a sparkling Franzia in a, in a box. Mm. Uh, that'd be interesting. Uh, the grape originated in... Uh, a small village of Chardonnay in France. The name originally meant place of thistles or thistle covered place. Huh. That actually makes a lot of sense because wine, wine grapes are typically planted traditionally, you know, historically for humans in places where you really couldn't grow anything else. Mm -hmm. Uh, They, they are a plant that does. I wouldn't say they do well or that they like, hard soil but they will grow in hard soil yeah then they'll grow in they'll grow in soil that you're not really producing like a orchard or yeah, like a, right. a wheat field or something like that sides of mountains exactly exactly so if you have a, a little bit more fertile place you're probably going to plant trees and if or or crops and if you have a place like that's rocky on a hillside you'll probably plant grapes. And and that struggle does add a lot to the flavor of grapes. And they, they just kind of noticed that as time went by, which I wonder if there's like an, this is something I was thinking about earlier this week, if there's like an evolutionary, you know, because evolutionarily we've been drinking alcohol for, you know, for I think, I think 10,000, 20,000 years. I think they. Mm-hmm. I think they have evidence going back ten thousand years. I was going to say. I think they have um, evidence going to eight thousand BC, which would be ten thousand years. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that's yeah. I think that's the evidence. And so if if people are growing, I don't know how long evolution takes place, but like you you probably would evolutionarily develop a taste for something that is more beneficial to your survival. So if you're planting, if you like evolutionarily you just love drinking stuff and gets, getting sloshed and you're just covering your entire food planting area with grapes, you're probably going to die out because you're not eating enough. <laughs> but if yeah. you're planting it in like the shit part of town, you know, then that's the part where like, Ooh, there's all these interesting flavors and you like the wine better. 
So I wonder if there's like that aspect to it. I'd be curious to see. Yeah, uh, I, I don't know how they would prove that, but that sort of makes sense to me. Yeah, and that's the thing is like you know we we kind of have not evidence necessarily, but you know we know that wine did come. You know, Georgia has a lot of the wine varieties, has a lot of yeah. unique varieties, has a lot of, you know, has a very, very long history with this. Um, so what it kind of makes me wonder is how much of wine, um, how much of grapes were food compared to alcoholic you know what I mean? Like, well, yeah, that's a good that's a good thought because yeah, you, you think about it that it is a very high sugar content, mm-hmm. and um, you know, back in in medieval, uh, well, even before medieval days, Stone Age days, I guess, uh, you just need calories. Yeah, and if if you imagine like, you know, a vine in its own right isn't super hard to maintain, so mm-hmm. like you could be, you know, your cousin could be in the hills doing the vines where you're doing the stuff down in the valley, you know, and then like your cousin, you know, is putting these things into the big pots and stuff like that to kind of bring down to make easier. Cause I mean, like how friggin' hard is it to like before plastic bags, really, how hard is it to transport grapes? They right. Exactly. Yeah. They're, they're very loose. So, you know, they're in these these pots and then, you know, you can imagine them fermenting in the pot because, you know, somebody took too long to get down the hill or something like that. And so you could see where like they go, Oh wait, we could turn these into alcohol. You know, they, you know, maybe they knew about beer. Um, Maybe they didn't, you know, who knows what the first alcohol, you know, was really in the end. Um, So that would be kind of a, a super interesting thing to see, kind of coming down like the hills, you know, it's like, okay, well I could trade you this. It's like, well, it's liquid in here. Well, we'll taste it. Right. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And, and I think, and you know, people, well, not just people, but animals in general do like to alter their state of consciousness. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, wine seems to be one of those things that historically does, uh, I mean, wine and beer. I, I mean, it's, it's at the earliest writing that we have examples of from, uh, Mesopotamia is accounts of beer. So, mm-hmm. uh, and like ways of making it and things like that. So like people do care about, about alcohol. Like it's, it's an important thing for the human experience. Um, so let me move on though to the, to the next thing is that, uh, by law in France, um, which you and I are opposed to, but, uh, anything that says Chablis, uh, must be Chardonnay. And, um, I, I'm not, I'm not, I, I would say, by law, I am opposed to that, but there is – this kind of goes back to you and I talking about trademark. And there was actually mm-hmm. something recently from uh, one of the great libertarians that, that we talk about a lot who made an argument against trademark and and explained how that would be handled uh, in a free market. And it made a lot of sense to me. And I was like, you know what? Mason might be right on this. And who was uh, this? So I think it was um, Daniel McAdams. Or no, no. Um yeah, I think it was. I think it was Daniel McAdams was making this uh, argument, and I, I have to go back and listen to it because I can't remember. There was it was it was an interesting argument, and I went, "Huh, yeah, that is actually an interesting way to handle it." And I think maybe I my position was just because I didn't know how else you would handle it, and so mm-hmm. I was just like, "Okay, well, I believe in trademark because I don't know how else you would handle it." But then he's like, "Well, no, there's all these other factors into it," and like, and then I was like, "Oh, that makes sense." So I'll have to listen to that. I think it was on. Um, I think it was on the uh, Mises Wire, or it's not what Mises Wire now. It's called, I think, Rothbard Radio now. 
I didn't think Rothbard Radio was updating, but they might not be pushing to iTunes. Hold on, let me let me see. Sure. I'll, I'll I'll we'll take a quick uh, pause. Well, why don't you I'll tell about your wine and then? Well, no, I got I got a couple oh, more of this. Okay. So yeah. uh, Chablis, and then um, uh, so if you see Blanc de Blanc on a champagne label, that means that it's a hundred percent Chardonnay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's interesting because Chardonnay is not always made out of white grapes. So Blanc de Blanc translates to white of white. So um, that's basically what they're saying is it's from the white grape of the region. Uh, and then it says uh, uh, Chardonnay is said to be, quote, made in the winery, quote, and uh, as it gets most of its hallmark tasting notes of butter from the winemaker winemaking method, which is mostly the barrel and whatever other methods go into it. But there, but like you were, you mentioned earlier is that you can get it from either concrete or steel aged. And it does have a more, uh, pure is not the right word, but more of a, a crisp taste, I guess more of well, a citrusy, more of a apple taste. To yeah. It. And it also presents more, more of itself. Like, exactly. Yeah. You're, you're, it's more, less more terroir. being modified. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, and then, then the seventh uh, interesting fact about it is even though Chablis uh, and cool climate areas tend to show wines with bright acidity, the natural acidity of the grape is actually moderately low. Uh, and I think that's interesting. And that might be one of the reasons why I don't typically prefer it. I do tend to like higher acidity wines. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, then also eight is uh, Went is in California is famous for cloning Chardonnay from Burgundy in 1912. The clone called Went Clone uh, is the source material for nearly 80% of American Chardonnay plants today. Hmm. I think that's interesting. And then the ninth and final interesting fact is Chardonnay started trending. Uh, um, Chardonnay started trending as a baby name in the UK around 2002 because of the character in uh, in quote, the footballer's wife. I've not seen that show, but you and I both like British television. Yeah. Have you, have you seen that? The footballer's wife? I don't think it's a, a comedy. Oh, it's not a comedy. Okay. Yeah. Then we, we probably wouldn't watch it, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I've novel. never seen that show. I, I always thought of Chardonnay as kind of like a stripper name, but uh that's not to like say anything against anybody. Uh, <laughs> you know, if that's, if that's the, if that's your name or whatever, and you don't feel like that's appropriate, you can email us at tastinganarchy at gmail.com, or you can reach out to us at tastinganarchy on Twitter. Yeah. So and I'll the, respond to you. So it's a drama, but the kind of the, there's like the, uh, the, IMDB, it kind of looks like they're trying to be like the real housewives of blah, 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 blah. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think that's kind of an inappropriate name for a child, but if that's, you know, if, if people want to name their kid that, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. All right. My, my niece was visiting us recently and she's super cute. And I've actually grown a lot on the name because now I like it a lot because I like my niece. Mm-hmm. Uh, her name is August and, or August Snow one word. And, um, I thought that was kind of a weird name at first, but now that like, I know her very well, it's kind of like a, it's, it makes more sense. So I think that's Mm -hmm. kind of like the thing with, with like new names until you know somebody with the name, it, 
it's like, you're like, ugh, what a weird name. And then you know somebody with it and then you have like associations with it and it makes it a normal name. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like my name where, you know, yeah. there wasn't a lot of people who had my name. And then like in the mid two thousands, like a bunch of people started having kids and then naming them Mason. And like, it, it trended for a while and I, it may still be trending up, but I don't know. But well, I mean, my name was actually the number one male name during 1987. <laughs> and that's the year I was born. So oh, I actually have a very born. popular name. Well, what's weird is I don't know actually that many Jakes or Jacobs. Uh, I know I know our friend Jake, who mm-hmm. spells it differently, J-A-K-E instead of J-A... Uh, no, J-A-K-O-B. J-A-K-O-B, yeah, mm-hmm. instead of J-A-C-O-B, which is the yeah. way I spell it. But um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know that many people my age with the name, which is weird that it was the most popular. So I wonder if there just wasn't that many people born in 1987. And um, who knows? I don't know. It's a weird thing. Um, all right. Well, but that's all. That's Chardonnay. So let's go ahead. We've we've got a little bit more time left, not a lot more. So uh, I, let me get into my wine review. Yeah. We're actually at like the last couple of minutes. And then we'll go ahead and quickly summarize the article that I have. And uh, we'll wrap it up there. Yeah. So this week, I have a wine that Mason, you have actually tasted. Mm, I have. This is the Sauvignon Blanc 2017 from Spicewood Vineyard. This is mm. the one that I bought for the group while we were there in mm-hmm. at the Spicewood Vineyard during Childeberg. Uh It is, it is like I said, Sauvignon Blanc 2017. Its alcohol by volume is 14.6% ABV. Uh, it is, I think, a very good Texas white wine. It's a little bit different than I think what most people would think of from a Sauvignon Blanc. And I think that's because Texas is so hot. So you do get a lot of alcohol on it. You don't really taste that, but it is very apparent when you're drinking it. So um, what you do get out of this that does kind of indicate that it's it's hotter here is a much heavier mouthfeel. It is a heavier mouthfeel. It is... uh, not nearly as refreshing as some of the other like well actually a good example of this was the rosé of tempranillo that we had from Ricky that was a very refreshing rosé mm-hmm. this is a a very good white it is very acidic it is very heavy feeling to me uh so i don't really think of it as very refreshing but i think it's good uh what i get out of it is a lot of um citrus a uh, little bit of sour apple from it, but mostly just kind of a heavier feel to it. I don't think it's bad at all. I think it's very good, and I recommend it to people. Um, it's not really in my, it's not really in my wheelhouse for what I like in a white wine. Uh, I did have some red wines from this vineyard that I complained about, but I also had some red wines recently from it uh, because I bought a case that I thought were quite good. Uh, I recommend this if you go to the winery. It's it's easy drinking, and if it's as hot as it was when we were there, mm-hmm. this is a great bottle of wine to get. As long along with the um, rosé that you had, I thought was also very good. Yeah, the Grenache rosé, right, and and refreshing. Uh, but that's kind of my review of this wine. I like it. It's got those citrus notes, but it is a little bit heavier mouth feel and not quite as refreshing as. Uh, something from something further north and a little bit cooler climate, uh, you don't get as much of that refreshing flavor from it. But overall, it's a, it's a, it's a good wine. Um, like I said, Spicewood Vineyard. Uh, it's in Hill Country, 
And it's owned by uh, the same people who uh, do Ron Yates. Well, it's owned by Ron Yates. And so he's got Ron Yates in High Plains and he's got Spice Woods in Hill Country. So yeah. check it out. It's a it's a good place. It was. And I and we, we both enjoyed going there. It, yeah, it was very nice. Very beautiful. Uh, very beautiful area that we were in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I don't think I mentioned this is the estate. This is a state one. So this is actually grown on on the property there so yeah. that was really there's cool. that too it's like it's grown right there and it, not that you could like necessarily go out they don't you know they don't usually want you going out in there but um you know you could definitely take a look and see all that stuff which was cool exactly you can see it i think they actually do tours but i think due to covid it was closed so because there was a sign that talked about it but then there was like a little thing on it that said no no uh due to covid we have to have like distancing or whatever so i think (laughs) they will take you out and talk to you about the grapes but i don't think that you can go out there because of covid yeah which doesn't make sense to me but you know whatever that's not the topic of this episode um Let's go ahead and go briefly over this last episode because we're about at about an hour right now. So after editing, we'll be a little bit under an hour. Uh, this is an interesting article. I think it might be topical for both you and me. Uh, the title is uh, Wine Should Say Goodbye to Blind Tasting. It's by Oliver Stiles. It's an interesting article. Uh, I'll go ahead and quickly summarize the main points of it. And I, and I made the, the main points pretty brief. So uh, blind well, tastings are going out of style. Real quick. Uh, most well, part. Oh, where does it come from? It comes from. Uh, it is from. I haven't pulled up here. Uh, it's from Wine Searcher. Okay. Yeah. So it which is probably a republish. No, it's actually it's a, it's a it's a post on Wine Searcher, so it's an op-ed, I guess. Hmm. All right. So uh, the main the main ideas of the article is that blind tastings are going out of style, uh, and the the reason why people argue against blind tastings is that you do not make purchases of wine when blind, unless you're blind. So, <laughs> uh, you and I don't decide to buy wine by not looking at the label or anything like that. So the vast majority of people who are looking at the label, assessing their environment, all that sort of stuff, they're not making their decisions on wine based off of a blind taste. Mm -hmm. Uh, It may be a more objective way to do it, but wine is a very subjective product. And so they're kind of going like, well, this doesn't make sense that this is how we assess wine. Uh, And then it says, so most reviews are not done in uh, well, they're not done out of context. So like when a lot of the sommeliers and like high ranking wine tasters and stuff like that are going and doing their wine tastings and ranking and assessing wines, they're not doing these assessments in a vacuum. They're in a, they're in some sort of environment. So they're in a bar, they're in a place with music, they're in a place, they're in a nice restaurant. They're in a place where they have a lot of attentive staff. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're also around peers who can discuss the wine. So it is not a it's not in a vacuum I guess is what they're saying. So they're saying that uh over the last couple of years we've seen wine tastings not done or or ratings on wines done by sommeliers and and others uh are not being done as blind as they used to be. Uh so and then also when they talk about so like the author actually 
mentions this. He says, when I give a rating for a wine, I always say, oh, it's more tannic or it's less tannic or it has more apple or it has less apple. And he says, those in a vacuum, those terms make no sense. More than what? Less than what? And he says, it's because you're in your mind as a subjective taster, you're comparing wine to something else you've had in the past. And you and I have this. We compare everything to Pina. Mm-hmm. Or we, we compare all Cab Sobs to Pina. Uh, or we – well, actually, there's two. I guess we have for Cab Sobs. We have Pina and we have Freak Show, which are, are kind of our two Cab Sobs that we sort of rate off of. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's because Pina is probably the best one that we've had. And Freak Show is probably the most – frequent one that I've had. I don't know about you. I think you've only had it really when I'm drinking it, but I think you and I've had it several times together. Yes. So we kind of make a lot of our comparisons off of those. And uh, so that was basically what the author was getting at. He says that a lot of, of a lot of wine tasters and people who rate wine stuff are kind of not going into this anymore as a blind taste test. They're more going into it as a environment test is if one of the reasons probably – and they point this actually out in the article is one of the reasons why people often rate a wine high is because they are tasting it with friends at a winery. Mm-hmm. And you and I tried peanut together and we rated it very high. And I still – I do think it's very high. But I'm curious to see what it would be like if we got a different vintage peanut maybe or, or maybe even the same vintage peanut and tried it separately by ourselves. Mm-hmm. Is is how much better would that be? And it's and it's that people really and and they've actually done t- uh, they have samples of this that he mentions in the article where people by themselves often rate about eight points lower on he doesn't say eight points lower but like just by reading over the article I was like this is, a, is roughly eight between six and eight points lower when they're tasting by themselves in a blind tasting than when they're actually tasting with friends. Hmm. at a winery or something like that. And um, so wine is definitely a more of an experiential drink. It's more like what you, and I'm sure whiskey actually beer is this way too. Like beer and whiskey and stuff like that are, are different as well is that uh, you remember my, my big story about the Halloween party I went to with Nate before he and I moved in together. I thought Pabst blue ribbon was my favorite beer. So it's, yeah, (laughs) exactly. It's it's clearly an experiential thing. It's that how much have you had to drink before that? Who are you with? How buzzed are you when you take the survey? What was going on at the winery when you were there? What was going on at your house when you were there? All of those different things play into the way that you rate it. Like I'm sure if you were trying to rate, you know, this Spicewood Vineyard um, Sauvignon Blanc, and you just got served papers from your wife that she wants a divorce or something like that. That would be your worst wine of all time. Exactly. Or or your best, maybe. <laughs> you yeah. know, I guess it depends on how you view the situation. Well, but, it could also be uh, that, you know, the at least I had this one thing, this one moment to myself to enjoy this, you know, to have this wine. Like, yeah, there's it, one of the problems. Right, there's a lot of ways. And, and what and it kind of to that point, too, is that there's a lot of ways you could view it, and they're all subjective. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's a very interesting way to look at wine in general. That That's kind of the main point I wanted to get out of this article was not necessarily that blind tastings are going away because I like to do a blind tasting. They're fun. Um, but that 
wine is a lot more than the flavor, the mouthfeel, uh, the smell, all of those types of things. Wine, wine is a lot more of like who you're sharing it with. And, th- and that's one of the reasons why I like it so much is that you and Mason, you and me get to share a bottle of wine every week virtually. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may be drinking a different one than I'm drinking, but we get, do get to sit down and drink it together. And probably every wine that I have on the show is better because you and I get to be on the show. Mm-hmm. And, and throughout the entire week, I'm drinking and stuff like that. And a lot of them I forget. I forget I had it. I, you know, I drink it or whatever. And I, I've actually been drinking a lot more beer lately. And I honestly couldn't tell you what most of the beers are. But I can probably go back, I would say probably a good 70% of the wines that we've had on the show, I can remember. Yeah, I think we did that one. And I can go look it up. And, and then and then once I read the notes on it, I'll be like, oh, yeah, yeah, we did that. And it tastes like this and this and this. And uh it does have a lot of that sensory mm-hmm. memory based on just you and me being on the show. So exactly. That's my message to everybody is make sure that you share a bottle of wine with a friend or somebody that is fun to hang out with. And I guess in these COVID times, like, you know, um, try to do it virtually. You know what? A, a bottle of wine is not that much. You can drink, you know, one glass out of it or two glasses out of it, out of it, put the cork back in. It's usually good for a couple of days and finish it up later. But, uh, it's a it's a good it's a good thing to do with a friend. Exactly, we do it every week. All right. Uh, anything else you want to cover before we close up? Well, you can always find us at tastinganarchy.com, tastinganarchy on Twitter, tastinganarchy at gmail.com, tastinganarchy on Reddit, tastinganarchy. Well, I don't think anywhere else. Childerberg.com. No, tastinganarchy on Facebook. Uh, you can go to childerberg.com. You can go to childerberg on Twitter. Again, if you donate to freerostal.org in the month of June and post it to Childerberg's uh, Twitter account, we will be matching the first $100 because we are trying to get to a full $800 uh, for free Ross. So if you can, please do. Um, like I said, and then, um, yeah, I think that's us. Yeah. That's us, and also um, my wife and I will be in Taos, New Mexico, just for the weekend mm-hmm. on the twenty seventh. Uh, we will be free for dinner. If anybody's in the Taos area and they want to join us for dinner on the twenty seventh, uh, let us know. We'll make ourselves available, and um, the twenty seventh of June, I guess I should say twenty twenty. Yeah, 2020. So uh, we will make ourselves available for anybody in the Taos area. We have stuff planned for the day, but uh, if anybody wants to see us for dinner, I don't know how much how many places there are to eat in Taos, but uh, there was a winery there that I wanted to check out. There's also a brewery that I was interested in checking out, but if not, neither one of those are kind of in the cards or whatever, we'll, we'll just go to a restaurant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you're in the area, hit us up on all of the things that Mason mentioned, and I will definitely see it in the next week. Uh, I'll be putting this episode up probably tonight or, or tomorrow morning. So I think that's it. So from us at Tasting Anarchy, stay free. Stay free, everybody. Drink it, man. Oh, give me some of that slop. Oh, pass that bottle to me. If you want to get along in Peterstown, buy some wine and pass it around. Age runs up to 49. All them cats, they love sweet wine. Drinking wine, 40 you to drink wine. Wine, 40 you to drink wine. Bye, bye.